Um, I've been here, I love this place. Um, I have to say, I love just driving here because this isn't the only building like this in town, as you know. So as I come up, whatever that big street is out there, um, it seems like I pass four or five buildings that are, hello! Hi. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Hi. These are my dear friends. I didn't see them here. Okay. <laughs> Um, anyway, just so many wonderful buildings, and um, I love old things, as you might have guessed from Never Tell a Lie. Um, the house in the book uh, is uh, the, a house that my husband and I bid on and did not get. <laughs> it's the house that got away. It's in Milton, but it's this, uh, this genre of house. Uh, really, uh, but without all the woodwork. Oh my God, the woodwork in this house and the stone and the tile. It's just to die for, isn't it? It's really beautiful. And thank God I don't own it. <laughs> Boy, would I be overmatched, yeah. Um, I thought uh, this being one genre uh, event, um, I thought I would talk a little bit about, first of all, just briefly how I came to writing. God bless you. And um, then uh, a little bit about genre. You know, what does that mean? And, and what does it mean in, for those of us who write genre fiction? Um, and so first, just briefly, personally, I'm Hallie Efren. I am the third of the four Efren sisters. So Nora was the oldest, then Delia, then me. Then Amy, my parents were Henry and Phoebe Efren, and yes, they wrote the desk set, and I got to go and meet Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn and watch them film a, a scene. I met Marilyn Monroe when they filmed uh, No Business Like Show Business. I, re I remember it quite vividly. They, they filmed a number called Heat Wave. If you remember that song, Having a Heat Wave, a Tropical Heat? Okay, and she's dancing with the very little on and <laughs> and I watched them film it and then I waited for her to come out uh, onto the sound stage. You know sound stages are these vast sort of airplane hangars practically with lower ceilings and uh, out she came on uh, little kitten heels <laughs> with a babushka on her head and dark glasses in the dark room and uh, said hello to me and went on her way, but I shook her hand, so I've, I, anyway, it was, uh, it was lovely growing up like that, um, getting access to the studio 20th Century Fox, and my book, um, Night Night Sleep Tight, is loosely based on, it's a character with a father who's a screenwriter and a mother who wrote with him, and, and it's, it's about, it's, um, it's a spin on the Lana Turner, Johnny Stompanato murder case. And uh, we lived right around the corner from them. So all of this goes to say all my writing is very personal, okay? I write about the house that got away. I write about, you know, the movie stars that lived around the corner and killed each other. And, <laughs> and but I didn't start out thinking I was going to be a writer. I was the one in the family who said I don't write. Um, everybody else wrote. I didn't. And in fact, what kicked me over into writing was when I was in my 40s, I got a call from a freelance writer who wanted to write a piece about me because, she said, you're the one who doesn't write. <laughs> and I said, if anyone's going to write about me not writing, it's going to be me. And I was 40 and I needed to get going. I, learning to write takes a long time. Um, you know, if you're a reader, and I was an avid reader, you think, oh, how hard can this be? You know, I've read a million books, so I'll just write one. 
And then you sit down to write one and it turns out you just don't even know where to begin. Present tense, past tense, first person, third person. You didn't even know there was such a thing as a viewpoint and it's like the most important thing in the book. And so I took classes, I joined a writing group, I cut back at work. My kids were away at school, all of them at that point, so I could convert their playroom to an office. So important. Uh, um, what's her name was so right when she said that to write you do need a room of one's own. Uh, yeah, Virginia Woolf. And all my proper nouns are gone, so I will need you to, <laughs> to help me find them. So uh, when I started writing, I do, did what most writers do, which is I started writing essays about growing up in Beverly Hills, about why I didn't write, uh, about my sisters, just miscellaneous. You know, it's what people do when we start writing. We write personal stuff uh, because it's got the most juice for us. We know it the best. Um, and so I had all of these perfectly lovely paragraphs <laughs> and words uh, in files and I thought I'll just string them together and I'll have a book. Well, no. <laughs> if I strung them together I had a very boring number, long, long manuscript that didn't go anywhere. It just circled the drain. I didn't know that it needed a shape, it needed a main character with something at stake. All of the things that are important in it in a, that make you keep turning the pages. I didn't have any of that in my book. So I put all those aside and I started to collaborate with a friend of mine, a, a man that my husband and I have known for years and years, who runs a unit at the McLean Hospital uh, and who uh, evaluates people accused of murder. He's a forensic neuropsychologist as well as being a practicing psychologist and running that unit and he has a life that is perfect for a mystery novel. So getting back to genre now, I, I generally in the mystery genre you need a sleuth. You need a character who solves crimes. He finds out who did it or what's going on here or whatever the question is. And what better character than someone who is a forensic neuropsychologist who's going to be digging around in the minds of people accused of crimes and trying to figure out are they telling the truth or are they lying or do they think they're telling the truth or you know what's what's the deal here so don loves to write uh, loves to read uh, mysteries. He's one of those people that'll, you know, pop them like chiclets three or four a week. And, uh, and he was afraid I was going to make him write and I was afraid he was going to want to write. I wanted to write. But I wanted to collaborate on story because I felt that I didn't really have my own stories to tell. And he did. I hadn't been in the war. I hadn't had terrible experiences like being raped or abused or uh, in, or, or hurt in any way that seemed to make the grist for really uh, wonderful novels. Uh, I was just a mother. I was a daughter. I was a sister. I was a teacher. I had worked in high tech and now snore. You know, that is not very interesting. So how was I going to come up with stories? So I worked with him on, we published five Dr. Peter Zak mysteries for uh, St. Martin's Press. They were very nice and then we were good and sick of working with each other and we're still friends, uh, but I think we stopped working together just in time. And it was at that time that I decided I, I wrote the book about writing, I wrote a book about books. In the meanwhile, I'm like panicking, am I ever going to come up with an idea for my own book? 
because I want to write alone. Now I know I can write. Now I have to find the ideas that intrigue me. And the first book was uh, Never Tell a Lie. Um, and I got the idea at a yard sale. Um, it was around the corner from my house, a big Victorian house. Not the house in the book, but the location is right. That I moved the house that I used into that location. Around the corner, for, it's in East Milton. If you know Belcher Circle in East Milton, behind what used to be the Villa Rosa, yeah, which is now gone. So sad, my pizza. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, so uh, I, I went to this yard sale, and the the woman had she she'd been living there for about six months, and since they moved in, they'd torn everything apart. I'd seen the decorator vans and the dumpsters, and I knew the people who owned the house before, so I knew the house. My daughter used to play there, so I kind of talked my way into the house. I mean, finally, she says, you know, would you like to go inside and look around? And I said, oh, I'd love to. So I'm going in, and it is Laura Ashley everywhere. It's just beautiful, matching this, matching that. And they took out all the interior walls, and it was one of those, it actually had a living room with no windows, just a fireplace. It was one of those Victorians designed to keep heat in. Uh, and as a result, of course, light out. Um, so, but they had opened it up and it was really beautiful. And somewhere on the second floor, the mystery writer in me kicked in. I thought, what if a woman goes to a yard sale? Somehow she talks her way into the house. She goes inside and she never comes out. I got out of that house very fast. <laughs> and, I, and I ran home. I, it was just around the corner. And I knew by the time I got home that that would be the opening scene, the art sale, where the woman disappears in the house. But you don't know she's disappeared. That there would be um, two women, that the woman having the art sale would be nine months pregnant. Because one of the most important things when you write a mystery novel, when you write this kind of genre fiction, is there have to be stakes, something at stake for the main character. So even though my novel doesn't have a sleuth, like there's no sleuth in Never Tell a Lie, really. Um, there's a main character, and she has quite a bit at stake with that baby. And then, uh, and I knew that the second character, uh, who disappears in the house, would be pregnant too. So they're both pregnant. I didn't know what happened to the woman. I didn't know the big secret in the book. I didn't know any of that. I just knew that they had gone to high school together and that they had some kind of past and that the husband was somehow connected because he was in high school with them. So that's how I started writing the book and the opening scene of the, of the book is the yard sale. Now the movie, how many of you have seen the movie too? Oh gosh, a lot of you. Uh, of course the movie does... Okay, so the movie doesn't begin with a yard sale. Do you remember how it begins? It begins with her in labor. Yeah, and she's, and of course that's what they do in the movies. They, oh, what they do in the movies. Anyway, they took my lovely book and killed the dog. I couldn't believe they did that. I was just beside myself when I, when I realized they were going to do that. Um, I did not have anything to do with the movie. Um, I did cash the check. <laughs> and it was fine with me. They could do whatever they wanted with, with it. I mean, really, you know, when you're a writer, you know, it's not that precious. I mean, it's genre fiction. So that brings me back to, well, what is genre fiction? Okay. So genre fiction, to me, 
you know, it's romance, fantasy, it's that stuff that has labels, thrillers, mysteries, and it's stuff that, for which readers have expectations. Okay, so you pick up a book in from the mystery shelf in Barnes and Noble and you have an expectation that there's going to be a crime, that there's going to be someone who needs to solve that crime with an underline on needs, not just wants or is curious about who did it, it's someone who really needs to figure out, and in my book, what's going on here? Where did that woman go? My main character needs to find out because she needs to save her husband. And then later she needs to save the baby. So it, 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 there have to be stakes. It has to be a really good reason. So, um, so genre fiction, and in, in crime fiction, we have a couple, we have subgenres, we have um, the big ones. I think of as mystery, uh, thriller, suspense. So a mystery is a puzzle. So that's Hercule Poirot who done it, or, or, uh, or, or any of a million, you know, uh, uh, mysteries. Who, who, what mysteries are you all reading? Anybody reading any series? That I'm reading Ray's new book, Ray Salemi. Oh, okay. So Ray Daniel writes a writes one with a financial guy mm -hmm. as the sleuth, and there are there are. A series where there's a cop as the sleuth, or a series where there's so, and and they're they're mysteries. So uh, the question is who killed so and so is usually the question, or who's poisoning the well, or or who kidnapped the baby, or whatever it is. It's a it's a it's a puzzle, and by the end of the book, you find out the answer to the puzzle, and hopefully you are completely flummoxed until almost the third act and then you start to see which way it's going to go and then it turns out you're wrong and then there's these twists and turns and then at the end you say oh my god I should have seen that all the time I think it's like in the sixth sense you know that movie where there's the, the where the doctor the psychologist turns out to be dead yeah and when you realize that you just think, oh my God, it was right there the whole time and I didn't see it. And that's a great mystery when it's like that. When you, when you realize it and, it, and and you didn't realize it along the way. So, but there are also books that we think of as thrillers. So, thriller writers like Lee Child or, yeah, or uh, uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo would be a thriller or... Um, um, anyway, the, what was that? Gone Girl. Go, uh, I'm going to talk about Gone Girl in a minute. No, not really Gone Girl, uh, for a good reason, but it's a good one to bring up. Um, more like um, The Da Vinci Code. That's a quintessential thriller because it's short chapters. You read, oh, uh, James Patterson, okay, anything by James Patterson. So you, re you read it so fast that, that and the characters don't matter so much. It's the story. You want to see what's going to happen next. And they're usually these short, a lot of velocity to the plot, a lot of velocity to the action, a lot of um, drama, a lot of uh, violence in a thriller usually. And usually the threat is something big, not just, not just who killed so-and-so, as, as if that's a just, but you know what I mean. Okay, so then we get to a third uh, category, which is my home, which is suspense. And that's where I think Gone Girl belongs more, because it's domestic. Uh, it's not, a thriller is usually a bigger story than 
what happened to so-and-so's wife. Um, even though Gone Girl is pretty gory, it almost edges over into horror for me uh, as, as you get deeper into it. Uh, but it's really domestic suspense. And that's my home, is domestic suspense. But I don't write. Um, uh, uh, she is, it's, a, it's really a pretty brilliant book, that book. Um, I loved it almost to the end. I didn't like the ending, personally. Um, but what she did really well was she snookered you in with that diary in the beginning, where you thought she was telling you the truth, and in fact, she was lying. And, but it's a diary, and she can do that. And if anybody read um, Defending Jacob, yes. wonderful book. But he does the same thing. That main character lies. Does anybody remember how he pulls it off? He uses a courtroom transcript. Yes, who said that? Smart woman out there. Yeah, good. Okay, a courtroom transcript at which, so it's not his thoughts. He's not lying to us. It's, but we read the transcript and we assume it's correct. We assume what people are saying. So that's a really brilliant way of writing is to write what's called an unreliable narrator. And that's Gone Girl, Defending Jacob. And I, I have never been able to pull that off. That is beyond me. It's really hard to do because you can't just lie to the reader. You can't have a character. That's one of the basic tenets of, of a mystery. In the mystery genre, readers expect you, expect that the narrator, the person who's telling the story, will be telling the truth or the truth as they understand it. Um, so, if, so for instance, uh, uh, Agatha Christie wrote a very famous book in which the narrator did it which was called The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Did anybody read that? Well, have a read, because it completely upset the mystery world when it came out. People were, you know, as much as people could be about books in those days, uh, 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 aggravated with her and furious. And then they all bought the book and read it and loved it. And the, the character who narrates is a doctor, and he turns out, you know, Spoiler, to be the villain. Uh, but Agatha Christie laughed all the way to the bank, right? I mean, she got away with it. And I think the way she got away with it is that uh, we hear his voice through his diary. It's the same kind of thing, and that makes it kind of okay. But as a mystery writer, one of the things that I'm always careful of is not to lie to the reader. If you read a book and it turns out that the, that the narrator's been lying to you this whole time, it makes the reader very angry. And most editors won't publish a book uh, where that's the case. So it's, uh, it's um, so I've done, so that's suspense. The, the, thir the third category is suspense. So in a mystery, it's, it's whodunit, it's a puzzle. In a thriller, it's stop him before it happens again. The stakes get higher and higher. That's a thriller, it's like a chase. And suspense is more of a what's going on here kind of book. And that's what I write. I like to write a what's going on here book. You notice a lot of my books don't even have murders in them. Um, Never Tell a Lie does not have a murder, does it have a, it does not have a murder in it. No, not my book, the, the, to the, the stupid television thing did. Yeah, but. Except that she murders her mother. She did not murder her mother. Her mother died. She took care of her mother and she painted her toenails. <laughs> and then she just kept collecting her money. 
Yeah, I mean, that's mom in the tub, but mom did not get killed. Uh, that's, I don't think she did. It's my story, so I can <laughs> just remember all these people are fake. I had a lot of fun writing that scene in the bathroom with the, with the toenails, I must say. Um, and that house where, uh, what is that character's name? Does anybody remember? I'm going to, where um, Melinda, where Melinda lives is a house around the corner from us <laughs> on Adams Street, right near the Villa Rosa, actually. It's a falling down house, and that was my model for, uh, it's actually exactly like the house I live in, except falling down. Uh, yeah, my house is not falling down yet. <laughs> Um, so, uh, and I had a lot of uh, fun with, um, so that's the three genres uh, that I think of as the most, but you know, within that there are also police procedurals, you know, and those are like the Harry Bosch books where there's a cop who's the main character or Jane Tennyson, and then there are uh, private investigators like Spencer, and then, and so those are the two, you know, really big kind of traditional mysteries. And then there are mysteries with librarians as, uh, as the sleuth and cozy mysteries. Uh, are cozy mystery fans in here? Oh no, I'm surprised. I love cozy mysteries. They tend to be paperback originals, smaller books, and they're uh, light. They take place, in, so think Murder, She Wrote, okay? Mm -hmm. They take place in a small town. They're usually a little bit, they might be culinary, you know, a lot of cooking in them, a lot of recipes in the back. Yeah. You like uh, Diane Mott Davidson kind of books, yeah. So, so cozies are fun, you should explore them. I mean, they're good for going on trips and if you want something that is, is not gonna cause a lot of angst in you uh, reading them, they're fun. Um, uh, so there's a lot, then there's the, the you can also categorize mysteries by um, series books versus standalones. So I wrote five series novels and that now all my books since then are standalones. And I like writing standalones even though they, they take me twice as long because I have to start all over. I have a whole new setting, I have a whole new set of characters, issues, everything is different. But um, I feel like every book I write I put the characters through so much trauma that I couldn't have write a sequel. I mean, it wouldn't be fair to them. It would be just terrible. I mean, you know, Ivy, what would, what could happen to you know, her? I mean, she needs a few years now to kind of enjoy that baby and figure out whether she can live with her husband or who, who is he, who, that, who is this man that she married? Um, I don't have an answer to that. I think he's complicated. And I think she needs to decide whether she's going to trust him or not. And that's a theme I tend to return to often. Even though mysteries are, and suspense and thrillers, they're light in that, you know, you're not supposed to be reading them for homework. You know, they're rereading them for fun. Um, all of our books have themes that we explore. And I mean, if you read Sarah Paretsky, I mean, she's always going on about uh, justice and women's rights and it's all in there with the she you know she's she's lightening it with the with the mystery but boy you can tell where her heart is and my books I tend to often refer to this return to the theme of trust who can you trust and I don't know why that is because actually I've been married for oh my god so many years I got married in 1969 so I've been married forever almost 50 years and to a great guy, I have wonderful children, I have no reason to be 
fretting about who can you can you trust your husband um, and yet that's what creeps in and I think all of us when we write I think all mystery crime fiction thriller suspense writers we're we're writing our fears you know what are we afraid of what are the things that are gonna pop out of the closet and get us at night and um, it's a way of kind of putting it on the table and then you can kind of deal with it it's uh, it's therapeutic I always say writing is cheaper than therapy. <laughs> yeah, and in a lot of ways, uh, I always go back to my own past to find the family issues. And family is always important in my book. And I like to write, uh, I like to write older women and younger women. So in Never Tell a Lie, I had a lot of fun writing Mrs. Bindle and uh, her dog and the relationship between her and Ivy. And and also Ivy has a troubled relationship with her mother. I'm it's been a long time since I wrote that book, but I think her mother was an alcoholic and ran into a tree. Isn't that okay? So my mother was an alcoholic. So I'm, I'm using a lot of my own, I don't know, threads, hairs, juices to make the weave that makes the book. Uh, they're all personal, even though it seems like it couldn't possibly be. You know, how did you make that up? And the answer is I didn't. I just plucked. Uh, so um, so uh, you'll never know, dear, was, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, um, Never Tell a Lie was a very personal book. It was my first foray into writing a standalone. And uh, it sold very well. It was, it was translated into a whole bunch of languages, which is a wonderful thing if you're a writer. You actually make some money. And then it was turned into a movie. And then uh, my publisher thought I was hot stuff, so I got another contract. So it was, a, it was really a wonderful place for me to begin, and very personal. Tell you a little bit about that house. Uh, that house in the book that Ivy and David live in is, um, is actually a house near uh, Milton Lower Mills. There's some really big, beautiful Victorian houses, and my husband and I went into it. When we were shopping for a house, which was in, like, 78 maybe, um, we looked at that house and it was falling down on the outside and like a pneumatic tube just completely pristine on the inside, the tile around the, around the fireplaces, the leather wallpaper, that statue on the base of the stairs, absolutely it was there, stained glass, uh, and there was a man living in the kitchen with a single bed. Uh, and a light bulb, and there was no electricity anywhere else in the house, and none of the toilets worked. And that house really was in Milton. Now, we bid on it. Anybody? It had, it was huge. I think it, it had five bedrooms on the second floor, and then that huge room upstairs. I didn't make up that tub with ice packing. It was all in that house. And the, and the, that, that was a real house. And the, um, it was on the market. Anyone want to take a guess what it was on the market for in 78? $39,000. How much? Thirty-nine. You're very close. Very good. Are you in real estate? Oh, that was good. Forty-five. No, he's, he's close. It, it was actually, it was actually 40, I think, or, or 42. And we bid 35. Uh, because we knew it needed a lot of work. <laughs> I mean, you tell it now, it sounds so silly, right? But fortunately, we were overbid. 
um, because we would have been so overmatched. I mean, they really did need all seven chimneys rebuilt. All that stuff, that is true about that house. Pardon? And it had a dumbwaiter. Yes, it did have a dumb. No, it didn't have a dumbwaiter. I had to put the dumbwaiter in. Okay, so here's how the dumbwaiter got in the house. I got all the way to the part of the book where I was writing Ivy Locked in the Attic. She's nine months pregnant. She's going to go into labor any minute. She's locked in the attic. How the hell am I going to get her out? <laughs> For about six weeks, I was stuck. I was completely stuck. I, I wrote... I wrote her climbing out on the roof, and then I thought, she's not going to endanger that baby. That's crazy. So I put her back in the room. I, I had her throw stuff out the window and alert a neighbor, but then the neighbor saves her. And no, no, I thought she has to save herself. That was very important to me. What was that? Oh, well, then I boarded up the windows to, to make sure that I did not let her go out the window. And, and so that she wouldn't try to go out the window, because if there were windows, she would have tried. You see, you have to be logical about it. So I just, I just could not figure out how to get Ivy out of that attic uh, until I thought, what if there was a dumbwaiter? Now, there was no dumbwaiter in the house that we bid on, but my husband lived in a building on 113th Street between Broadway and Amsterdam in New York City that had a dumbwaiter in it. So I was familiar with dumbwaiters. Um, and it just seemed like that was a little bit less scary, because at least you would have the sides to hold on to and go down. And that scene, I did have to write that many times to get it uh, to the, it's, it's a good scene now, but it, it took a lot of time to get where it needed to get. But then, I, then once I had the dumb waiter in the house, I could use it in the early scene where the sound comes up from the kitchen and she's up there vacuuming, I think. So it was very convenient uh, to put it in and then go back and use it um, earlier in the book. That's, what, that's the thing about writing a book is it's not a one-way path. It's, it's you write, and then you go back, and you change something, and then whatever you change over here, you have to adjust over here, or take advantages over here, or establish over here. So the whole writing of the book, then it has to fit together. It has to lock. That's the thing about a mystery, is all of those genres. At some point in the book, somewhere around the 80% mark, the book has to really lock in and start to feel like Oh, I see how all these little pieces that I didn't understand how they related to each other, I see where they're going. And then uh, a big twist at the end. So, um, so I, had a lot of, I had a lot of fun writing that book. Um, and it's probably the most personal of my books, although, yeah, it's the most personal because the other thing I'm writing about in that book is um, having my first child. I did not, fortunately, have multiple miscarriages. But I have many friends who did. And I know that it totally complicated their ability to share my joy in having my first child. Um, and I, I also remember how sideswiped I was by the amount of emotion I felt for this being that I was carrying. And what a fragile emotional time it was for someone who'd been out in the working world and, you know, I'm a kind of brassy broad. I mean, I would just do whatever I wanted to do and here I was with this impending motherhood. And, and so I wanted to write about what that was like. And, uh, and that's also a lot of, that's, I think that's why it's a good book because it's more than a mystery. It's about, it's about who can you trust and it's about um, 
that bond that you have with a child. So with the two women, Melinda and, and I didn't want Melinda. That's one of the things that upset me about the, the movie, but it didn't upset me that much because I figured they were going to ruin it anyway. But um, <laughs> one of the things that uh, irked me was that Melinda, in the book, I hope, you feel a little sympathy for her. I mean, she's so screwed up, and she had that crazy mother, and she was damaged. You know, we don't really know what happened in the bowling alley, but whatever it was, it was very traumatic for her, and she's never gotten past it. And so I felt like Melinda needed to be seen as at least somewhat sympathetic, not an a horrible villain, villainous, awful person. And that's what she comes across as in the movie, I thought. What did you think? What did? Yeah. 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 I just, and you know, nuance is lost on uh, Hollywood, I think. Uh-huh. You know, the whole idea that you might have a character who could do bad things, but for personal and understandable reasons, you know. So uh, I wanted you to pity Melinda more than blame her or hate her. Um, and also be so happy that she did not succeed in her pretty clever plot to, uh, to get that baby, who she felt she deserved was hers. Um, so I'll just talk really briefly about the new book. Here it is. I'll talk a little bit about the inspiration and how it, how, how, where I've go- come from in terms of of writing that first book. So that first book is set in Milton Brush Hills, right? You know, you knew it was Milton, if you, if you know Milton at all. Uh, it, everything in it, that bowling alley really did exist. There was a bowling alley beneath the, maybe the hardware store, the film store, I don't remember it. And there was a movie theater. All of the details of East Milton are, you, yeah, East Milton Square. You just needed to be, it was a, you know, a while ago, because of course a lot of it has changed. But that whole neighborhood is accurately drawn. But I called it Brush Hills. Um, my second book, Come and Find Me, is about a woman who is afraid to leave the house. She's, her, she lives on the internet and then her sister goes missing, so she has to force herself out into Boston. So she lives kind of in Milton, but Boston is more the setting. So still familiar, I'm writing about sisters, this is stuff I know. The third, my third novel was called um, There Was an Old Woman. And I set it in the Bronx. And I returned there to writing an old woman. The main character is about 90 years old, and she's a great character. She's just smart and, you know, she creaks and she aches and she forgets things, but she's sharp. And she establishes a friendship with a much younger woman who's come next door to help her mother who's an alcoholic. I'm writing about alcoholic mothers again. And uh, so it's all personal, you know. Um, but I needed a place in the Bronx with a view of the Empire State Building. Now, If you read the book, you know why. I won't tell you. But it was critical to the plot that, that, that she be able to see the Empire State Building from her house. Now I thought any house with a view of the Empire State Building is going to be two million to twelve million dollars because for a view like that, I thought maybe, and, and, and it couldn't be, it had to be a kind of like that house. It's a, it's a, it's a very simple house. So uh, I, um, 
I, I asked a friend of mine who uh, scouts locations for film gr uh, groups, and I said, I need a house with a really modest footprint, an old house, kind of run down, uh, in, a, in, a, in a very middle class, lower middle class neighborhood, and a view of the Empire State Building. And he sent me back GPS coordinates, which I plugged into Google Maps, and it, it got me to this part of, uh, Brook, of the Bronx called Harding Park, which is almost where the, the, uh, the bridge between Queens and the Bronx lands uh, in the Bronx, but on the other side of the, of the water. And there used to be an amusement park, a casino, tent platforms. People would come from Queens. They would take the ferry from Orient Point and, and rent tent platforms with tents on them for the summer as it was cooler. They'd bring their whole families over and they turned those tent platforms into house lots. So they are the, it's the weirdest neighborhood because there are these real, the houses are shotgun houses, you know, one room leading to another to another because the lots are so narrow. Totally off the grid in terms of, of you know, uh, uh, bylaws or anything, you know, grandfathered in after so many years. And uh, so that's the neighborhood. And you know what? A year ago I did a little research on where my mother was born. Damnish didn't turn out to be born in Harding Park. I had no idea. And so sometimes you feel like, you know, even when you're not pulling from your own personal experience, you can't help it. You know, there it comes again. Uh, I thought she, she was born in Brooklyn, but she wasn't. So, uh, so anyway, so that's where that house is. And that's a book about, about um, surviving. And it's a, it's a woman who thinks she's losing her mind, the old woman, uh, but she's not. And how she overcomes that. So I love that book. Uh, it's, a, it's a really fun book and it's got a lot of New York in it. So I feel like I'm t as, I, as I keep writing, I'm taking a step further from stuff that I know really well. So it's not Milton, it's New York. But I did go to New York City for college and, and although I have spent no time in the Bronx, but I don't actually think anyone has spent any time in the Bronx. <laughs> You know, I, you'll find people who were born there, but they have not gone back, and most of us just pass through, you know, on our way to something else. Uh, so I felt free to create my own neighborhood. Um, then, uh, 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 Never Tell a Lie is set in the 60s and the 80s in Beverly Hills. Now, I grew up in the 60s in Beverly Hills and went back in the 80s. So that landscape is in my head. I have a very geographic head. I can't remember what anyone said, but I can always tell you what they ate and what was on the wall. I, I just know that kind of stuff, you know? It's, it, that's the kind of brain I have. So, uh, so I, ha I, I want, which is good because Beverly Hills, if they drop you out of a plane into the middle of Beverly Hills and you grow up there, you would not know anything about where you were. It is so transformed. That, I mean, there didn't use, there used to be building codes that, because of the earthquakes, that you couldn't build a building higher than two stories. But then, you know, with uh, improvements in steel construction and so on, there's high rises everywhere. But there were none when I was growing up there. So the whole landscape is—it's like—it's like you grew up on the moon, and you—they, but now you're in Jupiter. You know, it's just not not the same. So um, we grew—I grew up on Linden Drive in the flats. If you know Beverly Hills, it's not down below in the less uh, uh, Tony neighborhoods, but between. Um, Santa Monica and Sunset, but not up in the canyons, which is where all the really wealthy people live. And uh, 
Uh, I lived on Linden Drive. Lana Turner lived two blocks over and one block up, so a very short distance away, in the house where her boyfriend, Johnny Stampanata, was stabbed to death by her daughter, Cheryl Crane, a 14-year-old daughter. I was eight. And it was in the newspaper, it was on the TV, and I was so captured by this crime and this little girl who had killed this, uh, he was a thug, he was uh, Johnny Stomp, he was um, uh, Mickey, uh, Mickey Cohen's henchman. He was really a, a very, he was 33. I mean, he was, and she, uh, Lana Turner was a lot older. Anyway, uh, I used to ride my bike over to that house at eight and just look up at what I thought was the pink bedroom and imagine what if I'd been Cheryl Crane's best friend. And so with the book, I go back and I say, well, what if I'd been Cheryl Crane's best friend? The thing is, I wanted to write the book about growing up in Hollywood, what it's like to grow up in Beverly Hills. And I didn't want, I was inspired by the Lana Turner story, but I didn't want, most people, people are saying, you know, do you think Lana Turner really killed him? Or do you think Cheryl Crane really did it? And the truth is, I don't care. They let them go on with their lives. He obviously was not a great guy. Whatever happened, rest in peace. But I am interested in what a crime like that, how it affects the people who are affected. Like Cheryl Crane can never go to a cocktail party without somebody knowing that that's who she is and, and that she was uh, you know, acquitted of murder and so on. So uh, that's really what I was writing about. And I, and I was writing about growing up in that kind of place in, at that kind of time. And um, so it's a personal book, even though it's obviously, uh, you know, not. I want, one of the things I did, I, I didn't want you to look, read the book and think Lana Turner, even though you knew the, the murder. So I kept a picture of Joan Collins <laughs> on my computer. And as I was writing that character, I kept looking at Joan Collins and trying to make her the character. And the Cheryl Crane character, I kept looking at a picture of Anne Margaret from, uh, from Bye Bye Birdie. Remember her in the yellow dress? Oh my goodness, yeah. She was so young and so cute and so sexy. And uh, so each of the characters, I came up with an alternative alter ego to get myself not to think about the actual crime, but to use it as a setup for the book. So that brings us to this great book, and I'll just tell you briefly what the, what the, what the inspiration was, uh, and it's always so far from the book. Um, I live in East Milton. There's a place called Fitness Unlimited in East Milton where I go, I used to go until my hips started to bother me, uh, to exercise, and um, I ran into an old friend of mine, Mary Alice Gallagher, who had tried to teach my daughter to dance. Was hopeless, and uh, my daughter was in her own little world. You know, the one, the one in the line who's you know picking her nose and looking around. You know, <laughs> Molly. Anyway, um, uh, she told me that she had just come back from Fayetteville, North Carolina, where her mother—that's where Mary Alice grew up—had needed to move out of her house, and she'd helped her move out of the family home. And you know what that's like, you know, all the stuff, the years and years of accumulated stuff that nobody wants. And to make matters worse, her mother was a doll maker. And she, I'll show you one of her dolls. This doll goes with me on my, because she inspired the book. Oops, come back. 
This is one of her dolls. She lost her shoe in my box. Oh, look at her, isn't she nice? She, uh, this is a porcelain doll. It's quite heavy. Feel it, feel it. See, it's, it's a heavy doll, yeah. Uh, it's got a porcelain body. It's got a belly button. It's got porcelain legs and arms, and they all move, and her head is. And this was made, uh, her mother made this doll. Her mother's name was Blanche. Isn't that a great name? I didn't know the name, or I would have used it in the book. It's better than the name I used. Um, my character's name is Miss Sorrel. So Miss Sorrel makes dolls. So we'll look that way. <laughs> Miss Sorrel makes dolls. And uh, a porcelain doll like this is made um, from a mold. So she would have had to create a mold, get the porcelain, I don't know, it's like a wet clay that you put in there, and then uh, you uh, fire it in a kiln, and then you break open the kiln, the, the, the mold, and then you paint and sand and make this very beautiful and creepy. <laughs> face and body and the whole thing. So, but what really got me was she said that um, when she went into the bedrooms, sit there, dear. When she went to the bedrooms and started looking under all the beds to get everything out, she would pull out boxes and boxes of doll parts. <laughs> Heads, eyeballs, wigs, arms, legs. Uh, and she also told me that whenever her kids went down to uh, Fayetteville to visit Grandma, they refused to sleep in the doll rooms, any room that had dolls, because they said the dolls were looking at them. <laughs> and so I just, I just thought, you know, there's a story there. I thought, uh, I'm going to write a book, and it's going to have doll parts in it. And the doll parts are going to be critical to solving the mystery. And that's... Uh, that's you'll uh, you'll never know, dear. It's it's the story of a of of Miss Sorrel, who's now in her seventies, and her daughter Lys, who's in her forties and has had to move back to Bon Secours, which is what I call their town. And when Lys was a little girl, uh, when when Miss Sorrel first had her children, and uh, Lys was. Um, uh, five and her, she had a little sister named Janie. Janie was two. Miss um, Sorrel made a doll for each of them, and not a doll like this, a porcelain doll, but a porcelain portrait doll. And so that's a doll that actually looks like a real child. Very, very creepy. Even more than, you know, dolls can be creepy. I think a doll that looks like a child is really. It's a tour de force in terms of craft, but oh my goodness, it really gives you chills down your back. So when the two-year-old was five and the eight-year-old was supposed to be watching her, uh, a puppy ran through the yard, the five-year-old, the eight-year-old followed the puppy, and the five-year-old, Janie, was taken. And her doll went with her. And 40 years later, when the book opens, the doll comes back. So it's not really the story about the disappearance of a child. It's the story of finding out what happened to her. So uh, the doll comes back. So I started writing the book knowing that doll parts would be important. I would have a doll maker. I would have three generations of women. I would have the doll maker, her daughter, and the missing sister. And then the daughter would also have a daughter. 
who has to come back and help them uh, figure out if is this Janie Stahl? Because that's the question. This is the first clue that they've had about what happened to Janie. So I had a lot of fun figuring out what happened to Janie. And it went into a second printing the day after it was published, which is great news. It just got a wonderful review in the Pittsburgh Gazette, by the way. And it's been, it got a great review in the Boston Globe. It's, it's, as I say, it's got legs so far. Anyway, it's a fun book. So I'm going to stop there and take questions about genre, questions about books, questions about authors, whatever you want to ask. Family. Better put the doll over there so it doesn't get knocked on. Okay, I will. <laughs> yeah, I, I should bring something for her to. I, I need a doll stand. A chair. Yeah. A chair yes. In, in that, oh, you, you said at the beginning that you always have the ending. You leave this wide open. Right. Oh, yeah. I don't always have the ending. Uh, the question was... You said in a mystery book they have, uh, they solve the crime at the end. It's, yeah, it's yeah but that doesn't mean that... Okay, so I I, I'm restating the question because I'm being taped. That's why I'm, I'm oh. interrupting you to, re, to restate. Um, he's saying, uh, in Never Tell a Lie, you say you didn't know the ending, but that you need to know the ending. Who? Yeah. Well, who did it? Who did but it? the truth is you don't need to know the ending to write the book. And, and if the writer is surprised, the reader will be surprised, right? That's even better. Um, often I think I know who did it and I'm wrong. When I get to the end of the book, I realize there's a better solution than the one that I had at the beginning. And then I just have to go back and tweak things a little bit to make it work. I mean, if there, you know, there are alternate possibilities as you go along. Go ahead. Do you think you're going to add on or does that leave it open to add another book? Uh, I didn't, Did, she I, asked me. No, does that leave a book open to add another does book? Does that leave a book open not, to add another book if you don't solve the crime? Yeah. I think it leaves you open to annoy your readers. Um, <laughs> I think most, it's, you know, I was talking about genre conventions earlier and what readers expect. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that readers generally expect is to find out who done it. At the, or what's going on here. They expect to have an answer to the puzzle. And so if you leave that open, uh, in a thriller, you can do it. I mean, I think, I think um, it's in um, uh, The Silence of the Lambs. You know, Hannibal Lecter gets away. Um, that's not the mystery in that book. The mystery is Buffalo Bill, who does get, I don't know if he gets killed or put away, I don't remember. But um, Hannibal Lecter uh, flees, uh, and that another book follows him. So that's, and that's generally what mystery writers will do if they're writing a series is the main mystery in the book will be solved, but there might be a subplot, a second plot that's left open-ended that, that can be then picked up in the next book. Series writers are a little bit careful of that though because they don't want people, after they've written 10 books, they don't want to have to tell people, well you have to read books one through eight before you can read nine. You know, they want to say, you can really start with any of my books. And so there are little writers just as a way of preserving their own income stream are, uh, are less likely to leave something major uh, connecting books so that you have to read one or the other. On the other hand, people write trilogies. I mean, you really can't read uh, the, the girl who, who, whatever she did to the hornet's nest before, before you read the girl with the dragon tattoo. But that, I think he probably wrote that as one book. 
one huge, humongous book. And then had publishers say to him, are you kidding? <laughs> and then broken into three, you know. And, but then it's over after the third. Um, though I gather he was writing some kind of uh, fourth book. But uh, did anybody read the, I, was it the same characters? Did anybody read the fourth book that came out after he died? That somebody else helped finish? Well, anyway, that's a very long-winded answer to your question. But I often don't know how the book is going to end. And often when I think I do, I'm wrong. So, And I don't think it matters. Uh, I think uh, as long as, I mean, you know, the, 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 the world of writers is often, they say, I'm not sure if it is divided into people who outline and know where they're going and other people who fly by the seat of their pants. I think the truth is that most of us do a little bit of both. And we do whatever works for the book at hand. That's my theory. I don't really, I always try to outline and then I ignore the outline, but it helps me get started, you know. Other questions? Yes? How much time uh, do you give to each book uh, in your writing? Uh, until it's done, um, you know. How much time do I give to each book? When I was writing the series novels, I could turn out a book a year. Yeah, and now it's more like a book every two years. Because for a number of reasons. One, I'm doing a lot more promotion. I, I do a lot of talking and I also get, I keep getting asked to read books and I have, I, I have a life. I have grandchildren. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so that impinges. Uh, so I've slowed down a bit. And uh, my publisher is pretty generous about letting me have more time. Uh, so, uh, so I'm in the middle of a book now, writing a new book. It's about a woman who is a professional organizer. She helps people declutter their houses. <laughs> and she's married. See, I like things, you know. And she's married to an inveterate yard sailor. <laughs> I just have, I promise I'm only on page 50, so I have to get going, but <laughs> other questions? Yes, in the back. If you're familiar with the, uh, the Maltese Falcon, yes. uh, uh, Sam Spade, the protagonist, appears in every single scene. As an author, is that something that's common, or do you see a vehicle for driving a story that way? Any novel written in the first person? is going to be like that. You just won't notice it as much because the Maltese Falcon is written in the, it's written with a voice that almost no other book has ever been written in in the mystery genre. It's the third person distant. Most of us write third person close. There's no thoughts in that book. All, you've, all you know about Sam Spade's internal dialogue is that he rolls cigarettes one way versus another. And Hammett does a huge amount with those little quirks. Um, but we are never privy to his thoughts. Read that book just from the point of view of point of view. It's, it's a one-off. I've never seen anyone pull it off. Um, and many, many mystery novels are written with only one viewpoint. Um, I mean, all the Sherlock Holmes books are just Watson's viewpoint. Um, uh, Kinsey Malone, the early ones are all just, uh, later, she, she has multiple viewpoints. But any single point of view book is going to be, is, it's a perfect, uh, you know, I talked about mystery versus thriller. Well, one of the big differences, uh, thrillers often benefit from multiple viewpoints. 
because then the reader knows more than any individual, individual character. And so the story, the reader uh, knows that because they were just in the head of the guy who's lurking in the woods, that he's waiting for the woman to come out of the house, and now we're in the woman's house, and she's la la la, we're in her head, and she's, but we know that she's in danger because he's out there. So it adds a dimension to the book that you cannot do in one viewpoint. On the other hand, one viewpoint allows you to surprise the character and surprise the reader. It's a very powerful tool, one viewpoint. The trick for the writer is figuring out which is right for this book. So for instance, um, You'll Never Know, Dear, uh, has two viewpoints. It's got the old, the older, Miss Sorrel and her daughter. Uh, no, it's not. Miss, it's, um, it's the daughter. And I couldn't give the, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm jumping around. Um, it's the, it's, uh, it's the daughter who, who was a sister who lost her sister, her viewpoint, and her daughter who comes back. There are the two viewpoints. I never put you in Miss Sorrel's head. You know why? Because she knows too much. And if I put you in her head, if I put the reader in her head, I would have to tell you what she knows. And then there'd be no mystery. Or, or there would still be a mystery, but one of the big secrets in the book uh, would be revealed much too early. Uh, so uh, in, uh, in uh, well, there's only one viewpoint in, um, in Never Tell a Lie. I mean, you're only in Ivy's head. You don't go anywhere else. So what's the difference really between that and and uh, Sam Spade. But the Sam Spade book is different because it is not a first person book. It's a third person and it's not even third person close. It's third person. It's as if the narrator is in a camera rather than in a character. And, and it's, it, it's, a, it's a tour de force. Uh, I, I've never seen anyone else pull it off. Um, Yes. Do you ever, once you've introduced a character, do you ever carry the character over from one novel uh, to, to the another? Novel. One of my favorite writings is Elizabeth George. She yeah. has that core of characters, and I was wondering if you do that as well. Do I, do I'm I, happy I, to be introduced to you, because I, you know, but I just wanted to know if yeah. Well, do I, the question is, do I, do I carry characters over from book to book? Well, Elizabeth George writes a series. Yeah. So it's easy to, to carry over characters. I mean, there's her friends, there's her partner, there, I mean there's people, there are people in the books, so, but my books are not uh, series. So I've set a book in the 60s in California, I'm not going to take a book set in the Bronx in the current time, and I can't, you know, my books don't work that way. I did, however, Ivy actually appears in, um, in, uh, in um, Come and Find Me, the book that came after it. Uh, it turns out the one, only anyone, only I know this, but it's funny that you ask. Um, in the in Come and Find Me, that character lives next door to Ivy, but she doesn't know Ivy. She just sees Ivy with the baby in the car, and and Ivy's not not part of the book. But if you know my books, you'll know that that's Ivy. So that's like a little Easter egg, you know, a little in the uh, in the story. Yeah, yeah. But uh, anybody else? Yes. How much input do you have in cover design? Uh, I get to reject. <laughs> what is the question? How much input do I have into cover design? Thank you for asking. Uh, um, I love this cover. So they asked me what I thought the cover of this book should be, and I knew it had to be a doll. I mean, there was just no question about it, because um, the dolls are so pivotal to the story. Um, 
And then they sent me this, and the eyeball, that wow. eye, it just, it just grabbed me, and I really loved it. Um, we dinkered around a little bit with the color and the size of my name and stuff like that, but basically I fell in love with it. But I've had covers that I didn't like, and I've rejected. And then they go back, and they come back with something else. And uh, that's because I have a good agent, and when she writes my contract, she puts that in the contract. You know, a lot of people uh, are so desperate to get published their first time that they will sign any contract. And many book contracts do not give you, unless you ask for it, unless you demand it, and then you might get it and you might not. But uh, I love that cover. It's not the right kind of doll. I mean. The doll in the book is like this, it's a porcelain doll. And if a porcelain doll were chipped, this would never happen. So I know that it's not the right kind of doll. It's, a, it's actually a composition doll. And, uh, but I decided to forego my, my, because she's so wonderful otherwise. So, yes, one more question. Yeah, did you have to do a lot of research? Ah, thank you. Yes, I did. Did I have to do a lot of research? Uh, for this, I always have to do a lot of research. Uh, but for this book in particular, I did because it's, uh, there's, a, there's a play, I, I needed a doll maker, uh, a do or at least a doll repair person. Uh, so I found somebody named Janice McIntyre who runs Jenny Baby's Doll Hospital. In, uh, in Hopkinton and I drove down there and she was very kind and let me uh, look at, I have pictures of doll parts and, and, and I, I understand how you make the eyes open and close. There's a weight in the back and they're balanced in the head and, I, and she showed me how you string together the arms and the legs which I use in the book and it, she just, she, she was great. She had, she has this house so full of dolls. I mean, no one would sleep anywhere in this house if you brought your kids there. And th there were rag dolls just hanging like ripe hams in the kitchen. And she was great. And she had a dog. I put the dog in the book. The dog is her dog. And the house is kind of her, a little bit her house. Um, so I had to do, do that much research. I didn't learn that much. I mean, you could, you know, I, I just learned enough to, to sound like I know what I'm talking about. And the other thing I had to do a lot of research on was uh, dreams. Oh, uh, yeah, I haven't even talked about dreams, but I did need to learn it. Did anybody read this book? Oh, so lucid dreaming is something that I did talk to a sleep expert about to make sure that it wasn't that far-fetched. Uh, and it isn't. It turns out they really are looking at lucid, teaching people to lucid dream as a treatment for PTSD. Very cool. Um, and I used to be able to, I used to be able to fly in my dreams. So I, I know how to lucid dream. I don't do it anymore, but when I was a kid, I could wake myself up enough in a dream so that I could fly in the dream. It was very cool. Who knew I was doing lucid dreaming? But the other thing that I had to do a lot of research on was the setting. So this book t is, and th this is how far I've moved, is I'm not, no longer writing in my own neighborhood. It's set in the South. You know, Blanche, uh, Mary Alice's mother, is a Southerner. And so all the data, all, all of her, those, I mean, I, I interviewed Mary Alice endlessly and got all kinds of information. She's a Southerner, and that was my model for my character, so I needed to go to the South to set the book. Well, the South, to me, is a foreign country. You know, I, I mean, I've been to Florida, that is not the South. I've been to Washington, D.C., not the South. You know, I really, New Orleans, even, is really not the South. No. 
North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Georgia, yeah, Arkansas. So, uh, so I had been to Beaufort, South Carolina. I've been there twice. I've done for some reason I've done a ton of events in South Carolina, and I like South Carolina. And I had been to Beaufort. Beaufort is uh, between Savannah and Charleston. It's on the Beaufort River, and and there are all the sa the sea islands out there. It's right near Myrtle Beach. And it is gorgeous. It's got antebellum homes and, and riverfront, and it's got a beautiful park uh, that fronts the water. And it's just, you know, live oaks dripping with uh, Spanish moss and camellia bushes and wisteria. And it's, it's got that heavy, scented, southern feeling about it and people move more slowly and they drive more slowly and they talk more slowly and they insult you in the sweetest way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're not from around here, are you? They'll say. <laughs> or bless your heart. <laughs> so um, so I, I wrote about half the book and then I, I realized I needed to go back down and spend a few days. So I went to Beaufort, the Inn I stayed in is Evelyn's house, that big pink house. That's the that's the Buford Inn, actually, where I stayed. So I used that on that street, it's around the corner from the library, just as it is in the book. And uh, I picked another house for the for the 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 Miss Sorrell's house. And I there were so many details that I could not have made up that uh, like the tides. They have nine foot. Oh, it turns out my husband's. Cousin is has a, a life partner who was a shrimper on the Beaufort River, and so I went and visited him. You know, shrimp boats are important in the story. Um, the tides are important in the story. The story has a, a, the main character owns a, a sport fishing uh, franchise, and uh, sport fishing is important. I visited a sport fishing marina, and uh, and. My book, the book has a character in it uh, that I, the critical character in it is the sheriff. The, he's, he's dead when the book opens, but he was sheriff for like 40 years. And he's an important character in the, in the past part of the book. Well, it turns out Buford had a sheriff whose name was McTeer, who was sheriff for 40 years. They named the bridge after him, this huge bridge that goes to Ladies Island. And he called himself a white witch doctor. He would, he would undo voodoo spells for anyone who, who wanted. Larger than life. Plus, I realized, you know, Conroy had written all, Pat Conroy had written all his books set there. And there are characters in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil that come from, I mean, I was real, I hadn't realized what a well-known, larger than life storied place I had picked for my book. And I realized I could never get it right in the time that I had to write the book. I was not going to go live down there for a year, which is what I would have needed to do to get it right. Um, so I changed the name of the town. And I call it Bon Secours. And it is Beaufort, but it's my Beaufort. It's this, and so, uh, so that sometimes happens, that you'll take it. It's like I called Milton Brush Hills, you know, because I didn't want people to get hung up on, oh, but that street do doesn't go there, you know, and I didn't want to. But I knew I just could not, uh, could not get it good enough. I wanted to write about a character who, um, uh, the, young, the young girl, the, uh, the one who's studying dreams is in her 20s. She has left 
Bon Secours, and now she has to come back. And I wanted to get that thing about you know having to go back home, and particularly the North and the South, and that she would be kind of brushed aside because she'd gone north. I thought there would be a lot of hostility toward nor northerners, because there is a lot of hostility among many southerners to northerners, as there is the other way around. And, uh, but when I got there, it turned out half the people there were refugees from the north. You know, they were all <laughs> retired and living, you know, so, so, you know, that train had left the station. So I'm glad I went, because a lot of my uh, presuppositions turned out not to be right. Uh, but I drink, did drink a lot of sweet tea and pimento cheese, and so a lot of the foods in the book uh, are from my trip. And so I love this book. It's um, it's uh, it's really uh, it's uh, it's it's a mystery, but it's also verging on women's fiction. It's really about about generations of women. So thank you all for coming. I'm be happy to. Thank you. We have, a, we have a wonderful bookseller out there, an independent bookseller. So I hope you're all patronizing independent booksellers because we're trying to keep them alive. And uh, I'll be out there signing books. And I have a, um, a mailing list thing. So if you would like to ever, I only do about four a year. And I send out a mailing list with my events. And usually there's an essay, either uh, something humorous or uh, informative, I hope. Uh, but you it wouldn't be like signing up for uh, Eileen Fisher or something, you're, you're only going to get <laughs> four a year. Did